HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 this is Jimmy Carboni of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Today is Tuesday, October 6th, and we've been talking about the Beer Bible book with Jeff Alworth. How are you, man? Welcome to the show. Well, Jeff, one reason you're on the show is you've you got a great book out, and I'm really enjoying it, uh, the Beer Bible. Tell us a little bit about how, how you got involved in that project. I know there was one book called The Wine Bible, and just tell us about the process of writing that book, and then we'll talk about some of the beers you mentioned in the book. Cool. Yeah, it. Uh, you're right. It, it came. It, Workman Publishing is the publisher, and they're the ones. And then have, Maggie's going to bring us that that special beer we've been waiting for. Okay, cool. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, Workman Publishing is the publisher, and they're the ones who had the idea. Um, they were looking for somebody to write it, and there was a kind of a long process of trying to find the person, and I got to be that person. And you know, I wrote this very long book. So that's what. That's <laughs> it what is it a is. long book. I mean, our, our friend Josh Bernstein has his complete beer beer course. That has been doing very well. Absolutely, Josh. Is, Josh knows a lot about beer. So how is it, you know? So now you guys are going to compare yourself again. How is your book different we, than his? We all compare ourselves to Josh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think this is a little bit. Um, it, it's it's designed to be kind of an encyclopedia of beer, and I was I was really aiming to make it possible for people who'd never uh, really gotten into beer to find a have some some resource, but also people who were really into beer um, who knew a lot about beer. Um, would have an, a resource. So I was really trying to aim it at all levels. So each chapter kind of, it starts out at, at the history and goes into some basic stuff, and then it evolves into the brewing notes, and I talk to brewers, and, you know, we get into things like uh, mash temperatures and stuff that basic people are not going to be that interested in. So, it, it, you know, I'm trying to hit all those things. So it's uh, it's really a resource. You dip into it. It's not a kind of book like Josh's where, you you know, you read it, and you then you know everything about beer. It's It's a little bit different than that. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Things I, I kind of like your writing style. And I also like how deep you went. And you started out with a, every beer tells a story. Yeah. That was pretty that. interesting. And we're, we're going to drink a, a flagship from Staten Island, New York, uh, Mild, because it's like a, kind of an English style. And you were talking about things like the style, the bitter style. Right. Um, let, let's, let's go into that chapter of your book and talk about English beer yeah. um, from yeah. your perspective. And, and Stephen and, and Ed will join in. Yeah, English beer is great. I, I had uh, cheers. yeah, cheers to everybody. Thanks for having me to Brooklyn. It's great. 
Live at Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, we're live. <laughs> we're all, and Bushwick. We're all waving our glasses around trying to clink them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, England was the first country I went to, and it was. Um, I always thought that uh, you know I kind of understood English beer. Our tradition sort of comes from English brewing, uh, the American tradition. And I didn't really understand English beer, and it was it was cool to go there. and And English beer is best experienced in the pub. You know, when you make yep. English beer, you're making it to be drunk in the pub. You're not making it uh, for people to go out, you know, and buy a six pack and drink it in the backyard. People drink it. All, they drink a lot of beers. They go to the pub and they want to have five, six, seven pints of beer. So it's got to be a beer both that you won't destroy you over that period of that session. But also that is interesting through the through the whole time. It won't destroy your palate, but it'll keep it interested and, and, and enlivened. So that's kind of the nature of English beer. And actually, when I was writing the mild chapter, that's what came to me. Because mild is the one style from English brewing that never really got a following elsewhere. It's just an English style. So uh, I was wondering, you know, what makes what makes mild you know why? Why does mild exist? Why did? Why am I even writing about it? And it and it was really I had to go to the pub in England and see people drinking to get mild and get why this beer exists. Well, well this culture beer, out there too. I think it's culture. Right? But what this beer is what? So it's mild. It's got it's got color. Yeah. And, so. and Stephen, have you ever made a recipe for mild? <laughs> Um, English yeah. bitters or anything? Yeah, certainly. And um, we did a, a recipe uh, in our last book uh, from Ron Pattinson, the um, the beer historian, and it was a 1945 mild, so like recreating an, an old English mild as well. Flagship really hit it on the nose with this one, too. I, I really like this beer, and it was one of my favorites from their brewery. How, do we know how strong this beer is? I'd say 5%. Five, five and change. So it's a little bit of a strong point. mild. But yeah. It's, but it's, it's like a lot of American pale ales. You know, they're 5%, right. not 4%. It's got a lot, do, you, do you carry a flagship at uh, Mug's Ale House? In, I actually in, uh, don't because I'm uh, after tw- well, 23 years this Friday, I have become so confused in what to pour these days. <laughs> it's just too much. Um, but I don't. Uh, I've had, I think, maybe I've poured it once, I think, you know, but uh, I should. But like I I said, you had a lot of the American pioneers of craft beer. Like you still have like Anchor Steam on. And- yeah, I think I'm one of the few last guys that <laughs> poured some of the. Uh, well, we always poured. We used to pour from. We poured Sierra Nevada Pale Ale for 22 years. We poured Anchor Liberty to this day, which is 23 years. We are probably one of the craft beer bars in New York that still kind of you know tip our hats to the old guys, and I guess now I'm an old guy, so <laughs> I guess it falls into but the they're whole. Not com- they're not coming in and ordering pints of mild and bitter. You know, I'll tell you. You know, you mentioned English, and and years ago, I remember when we started out, Fuller's ESB mm-hmm. was one probably still to this day. I think one of the best English. Um, Bitters, I think that's a bitter, right? If I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, it's an it's, exceptional beer, yeah. right? But it's 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 phenomenal. I could never drink it, <laughs> but we used to sell it a lot, and and then like the whole English style. I mean, I guess because American brewing took off, and it just kind of, you know, we've got our own now. We don't need anybody else type of attitude. So all our craft beers have taken off, and and you know that's great. It's a great thing. It's just that for somebody like me, it's become chaos. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People. You know, I keep hearing that uh, the brewers say that uh, uh, drinkers are promiscuous. They're not loyal anymore. They're promiscuous. So they always well, want something new. It, well, let's, let's talk about the styles because this is interesting. So this is a mild. So it's, it's, yep. it's dark. It's an ale. You know, oh. what, 
how did the mild come about? As in there, there's there's the bitter, extra special bitter. Tell us more. Let's go more into like English pubs and, and English drinking. It is an old style. So the word mild dates back to a, a time long before this style existed, in which it referred to uh, all beers uh, in England were either mild or stale, which is to say that they were either uh, fresh. They were served. They hadn't been. You know, they weren't in. Uh, they would brew it and they would serve it in the pubs immediately. It was fresh, so it was still carbonated. Still had uh, uh, the. It hadn't been barrel age, which meant it hadn't gotten Brett and Amaya season in it, so it was still sweet. Um, and it could be any style of beer. It could have been uh, uh, low alcohol, high alcohol, pale, dark, whatever. Mild. That's what a mild was. And then over the course of time, it evolved and um, the, the at, at, as the centuries rolled by, it became uh, more and more associated with a darker beer. People started calling these milds darker, uh, the darker beers they called them mild, although you can still get pale milds in England. And we had the great gravity drops. So this is one thing that really def- uh, shapes beer styles that we don't think about. It's things like famine, war, tax law. All these kinds of things really can shape the way brewers make beers. And in the world that we had the two world wars, and in both cases uh, in the U.K., uh, it forced brewers to brew really low alcohol beers. And eventually that, that's how the palate emerged. People went away from strong beers and went to light beers. And following World War II, when England was trying to rebuild the country, uh, it was a working man's drink, mild. It was a, it was a, like a three and a half percent beer. You could afford it, uh, and people had developed the flavor for mild, uh, low alcohol beers. So that's where that's where the style kind of emerged. Now that that was a chapter I was on in your book that I really liked. Every beer tells a story, and it, you're going there. So you talk about that 1936 Coronation Ale, right? So so, you know. Yeah. So this is a great story. Um, it, I, you know, I'm an American. I don't I don't know anything about. Uh, coronation, but apparently every time a king gets or queen gets coronated, they all the breweries make special beers for that. Yep. And it, it it's been a very long time since this happened, since we've had Queen Elizabeth in there forever. But uh, in 1936, there was a guy who was going to come on, and uh, they made all, all these breweries made uh, uh, beers to coronate this this king. But it was the guy who abdicated the throne, so he could mar- marry an American. And they all had beer sitting around that they couldn't sell because he didn't become the king. <laughs> and uh, and then so Green King put a few of them, like a few, actually a bunch of them in their vast cellars and just left them there. And then people found them recently, and we, we discovered those. So it was kind of like a time capsule. Did you have some, Matt? Yeah, I drank a, uh, I think, 1901 Bass King's Ale. There you uh, go. <laughs> Actually, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, drinking these historical beers are great because you can see this is actually like we read about what beers were like 100 years ago. But you you taste them and you can see actually this is is how they were made, the malts, like all that stuff. I mean, for 100-year-old beer, it was incredible um, just to see it first off and, you know, the wax intact and everything. And it 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 was an interesting experience. I mean, you know, of course... You know, they all turn into sherry after a while, but, but um, you know, I didn't get sick and I didn't drop dead, so I was happy about that. And they actually taste better than you would expect. I, that's what uh, I A hell of a lot more, yes. Yeah, it's yes, not, yes, you expect them yes. to be gasoline or something terrible. And it's, yeah, they're, right. They're no, it, we finished them. <laughs> right. <laughs> we finished them. It was, it was definitely an experience at Muggs. We had Jimmy Anderson, I think, did you, were you around for Jimmy Anderson? I don't know, but from Philly, but he was another beer guru out here. He's out at the Anderson in Scotland now, um, and Bill Coleman and a couple of beer geeks that uh, made this uh, experience an experience. It was actually called, we dubbed it the Casey Stengel. Maybe we should go um, over to Muggs after this. 
It's we really, can, we it's, can it's, go it's, roam know, around my cellar. You're, you're, not, <laughs> yeah. you're not the oldest guy in, in, in the beer world, Ed, but your place is one of I the try to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> if you've got more 100-year-old beers, I'm definitely into that. <laughs> I don't have any hundreds. The, actually, does. the youngest and, uh, beer that we had was the first Thomas Hardy's. So that was oh. 1960, I think it's three or eight or something like that. It was the youngest one. Then they went back. Right. And those are built for, for aging. So those were probably fine. Those were probably really tasty. We had Ballantine IPAs from 1955. And then we had, I forgot the whole list. It was, there was, wow. it was a, there's an article out there somewhere online from Wine Spectator because there was no beer, uh, beer advocate or anything back then. So. Wow. It was interesting. That's very cool. You're the old guy. Yeah. Told you. <laughs> so, Jeff, you traveled. Of course, a lot, I get traveled out of my seat. Book, didn't you? Um, <laughs> I did. Yeah. What, what were some of the places that, that you really liked visiting that you hadn't been to? So, I went. Uh, the book was a uh, two year project. So, I, I did Ales first. I went to UK, uh, to the Beer de Garde region of France, and then to Belgium. And then I went back. Actually, when I was in Belgium, all the Belgian brewers said, Are you going to Italy? You should go to Italy, and I'd, Italy was not on my map. So <laughs> enough Belgian, Belgian brewers ask you to go to Italy, then you know you figure you better go to Italy. So when I went back, I did mostly lagers, but then I hit Italy at the end. So I did uh, Germany, Czech Republic, and, and Italy. And you know, it was really cool. I got to make a list of all the best breweries I wanted to go to and contact them and just see if they would host me. And basically, most of them did. The only there were a few that didn't, and it wasn't because they rejected me. It's just because I couldn't get in touch with them in time, or the timing didn't I'm work sure. out. But, um, you know, I just, it was like a who's who of the best breweries. If you name a, a country, you know, it was like everyone, just the ones you want to go to. Were. How long did it take, the whole I was, uh, research? It was about uh, seven weeks altogether, so about three and a half weeks both times. Wow. Um, I was charging through countries. It was, it was kind of brutal. There were times when I was doing two breweries in a day. And, um, oh, dear. It's, uh, it sounds great, except, you know, you'd much rather just hang out with a brewer all day long and not have to get on the road and go to the next brewer. Yeah. So the, those times when I had to cut it short were pretty painful. Um, fortunately, I didn't have to do that too much. So what, what were some of the, the breweries that you featured in your book? So uh, in the book, one thing that um, we hadn't, I hadn't planned to do, but then I, I decided to do once I started visiting these breweries, is uh, I would visit a brewery and realize that it was really described a particular style so like urga in uh, uh dusseldorf is perfectly characteristic of alt beer and dupont is perfectly characteristic of Cezanne, and fuller's is perfectly characteristic of cascales so i was realizing that um i should write little chapters about these guys and, and describe why they perfectly characterize uh that style of brewing and i think there's 18 uh, of those in the, in the that's, that's one thing i really i really liked about the book yeah, it's, I think I think it's it's worth. Uh, you talked about stories earlier. One way to understand stories is to to understand, you know, to encounter the brewery, talk to a brewer, understand how how their style of beer ever, uh, evolved in their brewery, and it it becomes kind of a narrative. Uh, and then actually, that's that's how I got to understand these beers. So I thought it would be a good way to describe how these beers emerged, and and it would. You know, explain it to other people, too. That's awesome. We're off to a great start here. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I
1996, El Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's October, and we're hanging out, and we've got uh, Jeff, the author of The Beer Bible, which is pretty great. And uh, Stephen, what were you asking him about DuPont? Yeah, I was curious. Cause, Places uh, he's traveled, he's been all over the world researching the book. Yeah, he mentioned DuPont, and I know they kind of notoriously don't give many interviews, because I know last one of the times they did, someone stole their yeast. Uh, so, and you said you you did speak to them, so I was wondering how you kind of thought, how you f- um, found interviewing European brewers as a whole, and then kind of how that came to be. Yeah, tell us about going to, was it Domaine DuPont? So someone yeah, tell us. Brewery DuPont. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Brasserie de Pont. Um, one thing that I learned was uh, a great way to get in touch with people, just ask the, the logistic question, is talk to an importer because the importers have good connections. So that was one way I set that up because if you try to uh, cold call these breweries, you're random American. They're not going to talk to you. So it was nice to, to go through uh, importers. But, yeah, it's true that uh, there were a few. I got to go to Sam, Samuel Smith's in uh, England, and very few people have toured that brewery. And DuPont, you're right, very people have. Uh, toured that brewery, I think for different reasons. I think the reason um, uh, Samuel Smith is extremely uh, tight-fisted about information, so they don't like people knowing what's going on. Uh, DuPont is different. Olivier Dedecker is the the main brewer there now, and uh, one of the the ten family owners who's owned it. Um, I think the the brewery was founded in the 1850s. He's just a really shy guy, and I think he doesn't. He's not one of these. Uh, gregarious kind of brewers that you sometimes find so he i think he doesn't like to give tours um he was a very very quiet guy and um i I had my little audio recorder and sometimes i had to really stick it right in front of him just to even be able to hear what he was saying uh because he just it just a a little tiny so tell us about the dupont brewery i've always been fascinated i know that his importers years ago said that they saved the saison dupont they did yeah by importing him he was he was selling a lot more uh, Rador pills, which was the pills they were making. They sell that sell that locally, and then in the country they were selling Moinette, which is like a triple style, and the Saison, which is the old holdout brewery from or the whole uh, style from way back, was dying off. And then uh, uh, Wendy Littlefield and, and Don Feinstein of Van Berg and Wolf went there, and they said this is spectacular. And with Michael Jackson, they all were like, "This is the best beer ever. You should c- continue to brew this." And they helped him. 
uh, find a market in the United States to keep it going. But when they found that brewery, it was it was extraordinary. They were still malting their own grain. It was a totally a farmhouse brewery. It was completely, basically unchanged from the uh, 19th century. Mm-hmm. All their equipment dated to the 19th century. Their mash tun dated to the 1850s, which is shocking. By the time I visited, it had completely given out, and they'd had to replace it. They do uh, uh, their uh, kettle is is fired uh, with a open flame, which is kind of rare, and that gives it. It they only use uh, for saison dupont. They only use Pilsner malt, and if you ever have that beer, you'll realize it's very orange, and it's because they they do a long boil and let it. Uh, the Maillard reactions create that orange quality. Uh, but the most amazing thing, and, and I, the thing I think you were alluding to, is the yeast. And I really wanted to see, is this yeast as crazy as I think it is? And it was cool to go to the fermenters and see the temperature readings that they had. Because the, this is a famous uh, yeast strain that uh, performs well in the 90s uh, and up to like blood temperature, like 98, 9900 degrees. And, yeah, I went there and I, I could see the readouts and they were like 35 degrees Celsius, 34 degrees Celsius. They were just extremely hot and it blew my mind. I took a photo of that and put it, it's actually, I think it's in the book. Nobody will appreciate it, but it's just no other brewers want to brew that warm. Even people who use that yeast in America are scared to death to brew at 98 degrees. That's just like fermenting at 98 degrees is crazy. That's why so. we always tell people to brew saisons in New York summers. Right. And yeah. It's what I do, you'll too. Have, you'll have a great beer. Yeah. You want to let it get as hot as possible, especially because when you're home brewing, uh, you don't get the, the same kind of kinetic stuff. So it won't it won't rise as much as it does with, as a professional brewer. So you need it. You need it to be hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mostly brewers, home brewers don't have jackets to warm their beer up. So, yeah, you got to let the ambient. If, if people really well, this more about the brewery. So today it still has all the historical, you know, equipment. Yeah, it does. I mean, they had to replace the mash tun, uh, but they went. They replaced. They replaced it in the way that it looks. You know, it's the same. They just bought a new one that looks exactly like the old one. Uh, the kettle is still quite old. Um, the fermenters they use. Another interesting thing about the fermenters they use uh, uh, horizontal fermenters that are square, and I think that that has something to do with the action of the yeast because um, hmm. square doesn't, con- you know, it doesn't convect as well. And when you have a cylindro- cylindroconical, as people have seen in the United States, very tall, there's a lot of diastatic pressure that pushes down on the yeast, and it makes it behave differently. When it's flat, um, it, it does different stuff. And then one of the most interesting things about DuPont is that go- when they go through the bottling line, uh, they do a bottle fermentation. In Belgium, one of the most important features of Belgian brewing is all uh, beer goes through a secondary fermentation in the bottles. So they put a little wort and a little bit of yeast back in the bottle so that they get uh, even more of that ester formation that it characterizes uh, Belgian brewing. DuPont has discovered that if that if the bottle is upright when it comes off the bottling line and they, they do the uh, secondary fermentation upright, it, the flavor is not not appropriate, so they have some. But they hire people at the end of the bottling line to take those bottles and lay them down in uh, crates that will then go to the bottling line, so that the fermentation, the secondary fermentation, uh, w- will function better when the bottle is is laid on its side rather than standing straight up. So recreating a open fermenter. It's sort in of bottle. in a in a bottle. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And and actually when I was there and I assume this has now changed, he said that they were going to buy a robot. Uh, they they had they had purchased a <laughs> robot that will actually do that and lay the bottles down. So, modern, that's how that's how modern. It's that. nice that this is our so we talked about milds and then maybe we'll talk about bitters. We're talking about saisons. It's nice to talk about European beers. 
you know, it's, it's so many people are focused on, on IPAs and American craft beer, but I think there's, there's such great history. Yeah, I think it's like a little bit like vocabulary, right? It's good if you know uh, the grammar and then you can then you can riff on it. Americans always riff on things, so we make uh, cucumber gozes. You know, we make uh, uh, IPAs with um, uh, really strong IPAs, IPAs with American hops. Like we do, we always tinker with stuff. We make hoppy alts. We do whatever you know. That's what Americans do. But it's good to know what the original styles were like. It's good to know what a Dusseldorfer alt is, so that when you taste an American alt, you can see what the what the American is doing, and then you appreciate it. It's many many times the brewers themselves know what they're doing, so that it's, they would like you to appreciate that. So it's good to know the traditional styles. Well, another great style you, you profiled in your book is, is Trappist beers or Trappist versus Abbey, and I know uh, we just grabbed from Roberta's uh, this Trappist beer. Let's pour that, and then, uh, who wants? Stephen, you want to introduce the beer for us? Uh, sure. The Austrian Trappist beer. Yeah, so um, as everyone knows, most Trappist beers are in Belgium. Uh, this one, however, is in Austria, which is uh, makes it um, in many ways unique, but it's a Gregorius, and it's a Trappist I think it's from Engazel. Is that the brewery? Uh, yeah, from Engazel. Yeah. So it's another Trappist brewery, and uh, you did have a nice little section on Trappist versus Abbey styles. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so Trappist this, versus Abbey and the history I, of these great Belgian-style beers. I did mention this one, too. They added it. Uh, the, there's a, a an international uh, committee that... At, that uh, uh, declares a thing a Trappist or not, and when I was writing the book, they declared this a Trappist, so I had to go back and taste these beers and talk about it, but I didn't actually visit this brewery. Um, the The big thing is, in order to be called, a, so an Abbey-style beer is kind of a general category, which could be made anywhere, but uh, if, you, if, it's, if it's a genuine Trappist product, that means that it was brewed on the grounds of a Trappist Abbey. It has to be inside the the grounds. It can't be uh, brewed for the Abbey somewhere else. It can't be contract brewed. It doesn't. It, it mean, does not mean that it's brewed necessarily by monks, and in, in some cases they're not. I visited Orval, and the monks don't brew that. It's a commercial production, but it is on the Abbey. You got to go in the Abbey to to do that uh, to see Orval. So that's that's really the the kind of definition of Trappist is on the Abbey, uh, and in every case that I know of. Those uh, proceeds go to support the Abbey when this is a, a thing that goes all the way back to the 6th century when the rule of St. Benedict came down um, and the Pope declared that uh, the, uh, the abbeys had to be self-sustaining. So that was one of the things that they did. Was they Who demanded. knows the, the names of all the Trappist breweries? Well, definitely the Belgian ones. I know you know, Ed. I used to. Not you know, Chimay is an easy one. Of course. It's, it's Rock Roquefort, Ro- yeah, Roquefort, right? Roquefort or Roquefort? Americans call it Roquefort, Roquefort. <laughs> I, I visited that brewery. They call it Rochefort there. So there you go. But we're Americans. We can call it. It's we funny. Want. I and remember I somebody's somebody going to be. I think Maggie's going to tweet tweet out all the Trappist breweries. Yeah. So then, <laughs> so then there's also West. There's we West, should know this. There's West we Lettering. We should know this. That's right. so what we got. We got West or, Lettering, or West Lettering, Orval, West Mall, uh, Chimay, Akel, uh, Akel. Uh, Orval. Orval. Did I say Orval? And then in, huh. in Netherlands, there's La Trappe. And La Trappe, right? And Just across got, the board. Now in Austria, this uh, it's uh, Engelzell. Engelzell. And there's one in uh, oh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, well, I didn't write about that one. Which no one really? knows the name of it. Yeah. 
Has it, we're, and, all, we're all open. And someone tweeted us. Has anyone been there yet? Yeah. We've got to go up to Massachusetts and try that. I'd really like to try that beer. That's another thing. You can't get that beer. I want to say it's St. Timothy's, but I know that's not true. It's like that. It's like, yeah, it's like a name. It's like a regular name. St. Jimmy's. I bet if you go to at beer underscore sessions, they will be tweeting the name of the Massachusetts Trappist Brewery. Right. But Trappists are cool. Like I know even like there's a lot of other Trappist uh, you know, monasteries. I know that in Montreal there's a Trappist monastery that just makes cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that. They make things like cheese and jam and, and then sometimes wine and beer and they got to support themselves. So that's. Jimmy, I was wondering why you're wearing that monk outfit today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're in the basement of the old Burb Castle. So <laughs> it can you imagine? But back, back, talking about 23 anniversaries. Go, right. Back when, when you started Mug's Ale House, there was this thriving place on East 7th Street called Burp Castle. Exactly. And the yeah. staff really did dress in, in monks' robes. Have you ever there? been there, is Jeff? It, is it still there? No. no. It's still there. It's my upstairs neighbor. Do they still dress up and do the whole spiel? Uh, they kind of stopped doing that, but some enthusiasts will do it. I used to go there. There's one woman that's an opera singer, and she, she, she'll still wear the robes. So. I do think she's on murals? Saturday nights at Burke Castle. They have the murals on the walls? Still, they still, they haven't taken that away. They're like yeah. the, the murals yeah. of the intoxicated you yeah. know, monks. <laughs> you know? It's like being, being a bar owner for 23 years, you, uh, you had like an expression on your face when we mentioned drinkers being fickle. Um, perhaps like they're looking for the new beer all the time, but do you feel that they're, they're loyal to where they drink it? I, I, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I have to say we have a good percentage of regulars that do come back and, and know. But, I you know, I kind of uh, I attribute that to the fact that we do have, like, a standard set of beers that people that do want to just have that can come and have that. And then we rotate the other ones, and if we have something interesting, then they will explore no, that's it. A really good, explore that's a really good that. point, and it's, it's good to have Jeff here. Talk. It's because for, for us, so many of the good beer bars are, like, always rotating. Right. But then you realize that the, for a customer, so, like, so the difference between the, you know, on the edge beer bar with all rotating taps versus that customer who had a really good beer and wants to come back and have the same one. And that's how question. How do you, how do you deal with it? I know how you've dealt with it awesome. by keeping some of your, your classics. But how, how do you how do you think that plays into, you know, because I change my beers all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I can talk mainly as a drinker here and, and uh, I'm interested actually in your insight. I like to go back and forth. As a as a, a guy who writes about beer, I do feel like I need to keep abreast of the new beers that are coming out, and especially if a beer is you know highly touted. When I, I was just drinking beer this afternoon, and I wanted to drink local beers here, make sure I w- was getting a sense of what's going on here. But I like to go back and forth. I, there are beers that I absolutely love, and it's terrible if all you ever do is drink the new thing. You know, you end up going through a lot of beers you don't like. You end up you know right, exactly. You, you want you want you want to go back to your faves, and I have. I don't know, probably 20 beers that I love, absolutely love. And every time I see them on a list, I want to drink one of those beers. So, And I go back and forth. And that's, that's how I handle as a drinker. I don't know how you guys do it. but I mean, I know when I go to Jimmy's, I'm going to get something different from New York, basically, uh, or for the most part. But then you have breweries like Transmitter here in uh, Long Island City, and they basically don't make the same beer more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we've been pouring them. Actually, I love I love what they did. I, I think it was very smart on, on their hand, and I think they did a great job, and their, their, their beers are phenomenal for a local brewery to do that and those styles. But Ed, you know. So how do you pick your list? Because you have over 20 taps at Mugs. God, it used to be easier. I mean, we have 32, and 
it used to be a lot easier, but uh, it's a lot more difficult. I keep telling it. I've had this conversation with, with hundreds of people in the last couple of months. It's just, it's gone psychotic in New York. I mean, I remember way back in the 90s when there was no beer to pour. I mean, Rogue was in New Jersey, and I was like going to swim over to New Jersey to pick up a, <laughs> a barrel of Rogue to bring it back to pour in New York because it was unbelievable. But now... It's, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I used to be able to try beers. I can't try all the beers anymore. I mean, I'm 50. That's one thing. It, it doesn't work anymore. But um, I, I kind of go on the whim. I, I've got, I'm starting to I'm, – I'm trying to create alliances with breweries. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do this attitude like I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll keep pouring you. You get anything special, small batch, send it my way. And that's what I'm trying to do, and I'll, I'll guarantee them a line. I'll tell you what, we're, we're taking a break, but think about which breweries in New York City you want to work with to make Muggs Ale House 25th anniversary beer in two years. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything a dollar two dollars ten dollars a hundred dollars a thousand dollars anything counts and trust me we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations so consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org click on that little beating heart the donate button and show us you care thanks for listening i hope you enjoy the rest of the show hey hey, hey. welcome back to beer sessions radio on the heritage radio network jack that was an awesome little intro we do love the network heritageradionetwork.org Become a member. I'm a member. I think I've been member 501 for five years, so I'm really into it. Are you a member at a Heritage Radio Network? Not yet. You should be. Well, not now. I lost my seat. But we had a good question. <laughs> a good question was, uh, you, you, in two years, Muggs Ale House in Williamsburg has its 25th anniversary. Which local breweries now would you talk to about doing a special 25th anniversary brew? And you know, what style would that be? That was a good, that's a good one. Well, you know, Maybe we, Steven can make a style for you guys. We, had a, we actually had a 20th that we approached Brooklyn Brewery with, and they did a phenomenal job. It was called Blood Brothers IPA. It was a red IPA at about 8.5%. Um, and they did a great job because they were there from the beginning when we were there from the beginning. So we kind of felt that that was appropriate. Now at 25, so many more breweries. I mean, you know, I'd have to hit the other half – I'd have to hit single cut. Um, I'd like to get a little, you know, group going of a whole bunch of brewers. And actually, it would be a nice little, I guess, tip of the so hat to me, I Jeff's, guess. Jeff's look, because he talks about a lot of styles. Uh, Steven and Jeff, what, what, what would be good styles for a 25th anniversary beer? I would I would think you should only uh, approach brewers that are younger than 25. Ah. I think you can probably find uh, quite a few now in uh, in New York City. That's not a bad idea. I like that. Well, I mean, I, I but then the whole thing is I have to like, I it becomes difficult because you know Barrier they started later. I mean, they started earlier than the other guys, but we've been pouring them for a while. So if I kind of now people will get offended. So actually, I shouldn't mention anything. Forget about it. Scratch <laughs> it yeah. all. We're not going to. Uh, I'm going to get New Jersey. Let's go. Historically, <laughs> in your book, the Beer Bible, what would be a good 
style that would work as a 25th anniversary beer? Well, you know, I, actually, one thing that I learned when I went to Europe and I came back and uh, saw American brewing is uh, when you travel around Europe, every single country brews differently. We, we talked a little right. bit about uh, Belgium and with DuPont. They do the, the warm room thing with the secondary fermentation. That's totally typical. All beers in Belgium do that. In the Czech Republic, they decoc- they use decoction mash for every beer. In order to actually be called Czech beer, Czech pi- Czeske pivo, it's got to be decocted. Um, they do, we talked about uh, mild ale in England. They do cask ale in England. Everybody does their own thing. But basically, uh, we haven't had a new beer style emerge uh, since probably... Uh, the Czechs did Pilsner. I mean, mm. a national tradition. It, it hasn't really emerged uh, in uh, 150 years, except maybe the United States. So the United States now brews these crazy hoppy IPAs. <laughs> and one of the things that makes them so interesting and different from the English IPAs is we focused on uh, flavor and aroma hops. Not only American uh, hops, which are also distinctive, but uh, that those really rich flavors and aromas that come when you add the uh, hops later in the, the brewing process. Right. And they're copying this. When you go to England now, when you go to London, everybody's making American IPAs. When I went to Prague, American IPAs. They were like, said, you want an IPA? You want an IPA? And I was like, what are you talking? And they showed me the, the point of the board. Oh, IPA. I see what you're talking about. So that's, that's, that's the thing now. So I would say, you know. 25th anniversary that no. like coincides no. with America? No. I want open fermented. I want Brooklyn air in it. <laughs> I I you know IPAs I'm an, I'm a hophead. So I'm right up there with but, you with that. But I you know Right, we're fun. America, man. I know we are. And Americans <laughs> and Americans love that stuff. Oh, I love it. Our love listeners it. right City's now are they're America. thinking make an IPA. That's what they're thinking. They're making make an IPA. You know what it is though? Make it's like IPA. I really for 25 years I'd tell you I'd want an imperial stout. Because it's something that I could have sit there. Because like our bro- blood brothers, we I had we held on to Sixtals for about two three years, and you know as any IPA after a couple of years you can't age IPAs. So I wouldn't mind having something where I can have a little life on it on the That's end, true. on the on the long run. You know? Well, you could ask people. Bring me your 25-year-old beers. Or maybe somebody will do like an imperial stout blended with IPA, and then we'll figure, like, some other crazy stuff. Let's go back. We we first had this this, Austrian Trappist beer, the Engazel. It's a 9.5% Trappistale. Right. Go. Style. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the interesting thing. There is no style. Abbey ales are their own style. And and actually, one of the most interesting things is, if you look at Belgium, since they're mainly brewed in Belgium, they reflect the region that, uh, that... uh, they were brewed in. So when you look at uh, West Vlederen and St. Bernardus, which used to be uh, contract brew for West Vlederen, they make these really dark... Number 12. Yeah, the number 12s. So that's like a classic Flanders yeah. style. They make big, heavy, dark ales. Yeah. You look at uh, you look at Westmall, that's where the strong pale ale uh, emerged. And actually, the triple style started at Westmall. So that's like a classic thing. You so, look at Orval... And those are like, that's where they made the Saison. So Orval is basically a Saison. It's like totally different from all the other Have ones. we broken those styles out here in the States? Like taken the Trappist beers and said, you know, this is a Belgian strong ale. Or this is a Belgian pale ale. Have we interpreted that differently? Or is that? Or I mean, like, because you said that Trappist is its own style, right? Or Abbey. Abbey is its own style, you said. It's sort of its own. It's a category, but it has all these different Umbrella. all these different beers that are kind of... But there, they don't interpret it that way, though. Yeah, for that, for them... It's, uh, it's a good point. So it's... 
by, by country, by region, there, there's different Well, because we do there. a Belgian festival in December, and it's always yeah. like, we'll get some of these crazy Belgian beers, and it's like, well, all right. I was going to say a, the same thing. And my, well, mine's December right, 5th, wait, yeah, right. Battle of the Belgians, yeah. we showcase this. When's I'm yours older this than you. When's yours? This first weekend of... December. It's probably the same. You're never going to let it go. December 5th. It's, You're never going to let it Belgian go. Belgian weekend in New York City. Mugsdale House exactly. and Jimmy's number 43. We should join so. forces. Yeah. You should join forces. <laughs> and Stephen, have you made a, a recipe with Abby, Abby Ale style? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's really one of our, some of our favorite favorite beers. We used to make a kit for making a triple, but we, we just couldn't fit it in the box anymore because it was 10%. Uh, <laughs> right. So you have to make, you have to make compromises. Yeah, we have Allagash. Allagash makes a triple. A lot of people make but That's why we started doing Battle of the Belgians, because a lot of American breweries are making great Belgians. And, you know, Alma Gang has their Abbey Ale. I like to tell people, you should try West Mall Triple. If you haven't had that beer before and you're an American fan, you you know, you think that the Belgians are not so good. That's 38 IBUs, and it's such a strong beer. It's so thin that those 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 hops really pop. And it actually, there's a way in which you can look at the uh, West Mall Triple and kind of see triple IPA in, or double IPA in it. I've always thought Belgian beers are most interesting. I mean, you know, we're catching up now, but, I mean, in the early days, they were the most interesting and the most, like, they had a lot going for them. And I hate seeing them, like, being pushed back, but, you know. And I think a lot of people, I think, yeah. are going to start discovering. And it's fine. Some consultants have said, oh, if you're going to open a brewery now, you have to either do English-style German style or Belgian style, because they feel like that you, you have to have some identity. But that's another point. But, but it's like Belgian beers beer. being brewed in Italy. But Stephen, right. so you just opened a beer for us, and we're talking about IPAs. What's the black IPA that you made? Yeah, black IPA. Um, this is one of our one of our new test batches. We're always we're always brewing different beers uh, to uh, figure out what to what to make next. One uh, of the toughest styles to sell at Mugs. Yeah. <laughs> So well, let's talk about that style. Two or three but years yeah, ago, were these popular? I'm noticing that black IPAs. Yeah, they've been around, and I, I think they're great. But it's to put them up on a draft line. It's people aren't attracted to them. They 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 just I don't know if it's the something, color or what. Happened. They just don't. But they Steve, don't, they're what, not appealing. What were you saying? Something something happened to that. Oh, sorry. No, style. no, no, no. no, no I, I'm just noticing that the. Uh, one thing I noticed about the book is that it is, if for anyone who doesn't have it in front of them like we do, um, it's laid out by style, uh, which I think is, is a great way for to introduce people to to beer that yeah. maybe they know something they don't 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 know too much or they just want to learn really dig into a, a particular style. So then we have black IPAs or Cascadian dark ales, and beer Thank is you. changing. Uh, so much. So how do you how do you write a book that is like literally is the beer bible uh and how do you uh stay on top of these changing styles like black ipa or cascading dark ale yeah i mean i think most of the styles that we're seeing brewed in america and america is by far the most innovative uh we're really doing a lot of new stuff but it, it, it it's ref, it refers back to traditional style so the black ipa is like what happens if we put some roasted malt in an ipa like how can we get a quality that is uh, dark and and hoppy at the same time so what i did in the book is i had uh, uh, a a, chat, a a little section in each thing that talked about the evolution and where the style is headed and i tried to talk about what i've seen out there you know where breweries are taking these styles and sometimes they're not taking them anywhere some styles like the mild ale that's not going anywhere that's like frozen in amber but some styles ipas are totally people are doing session ipas white ipas belgian ipas black ipas everything so you know we're seeing all the stuff and i, I did try to mention weed ipas and, but t- talking about the black ipa though a few years ago i felt like they were really hot and then that's what kind of what ed's saying then they're they, they're not moving 
I, I haven't had it. I mean, you know what? The only one is the one we have up now is the, the other half's uh, black IPA. I think. The Doug. Doug, right. Yeah. That's the only one that's really been, like, moving moving along. I don't know if it's the evolution of people and saying, all right, well, now it's something that we like or if it's other half. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it, it's the only one that we kind of really are getting through. And, it seems and, like a winter IPA to me. If I were if I were had a pub, I'd put my, you know, my, my black IPAs on in, in January. The first time we put a Hefeweizen up on draft, and that was Oberdorfer, it, we put it up in December, and we sold the hell out of it. So well, I'm, not, I'm not looking at seasons. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't know what that, I don't But know I will say that I, I liked Black IPA, and when, when, I think when it's called Cascadian Dark Ale, I don't, I don't think that that's Maybe that's appealing. what it is. They've got to change the name yeah, and make it why officially did, the why did they call it? Why couldn't they just call it Black IPA? Why do they have to make it a whole well, other name? Well, so that, that comes from my region, the black, this Cascadian Dark Ale, and it's because uh, there were some folks there who were agitating uh, that the style started there and it has distinctive characteristics that are ca- – so Cascadia is this region from uh, northern California up through uh, uh, southern British Columbia. That basically, my region is incredibly parochial, and we want everything to be referential to us, and there's no difference between CDA and I- Black IPA. I'm going to say it here, and I'm going to – there's going to burn me at the stake when I get there. <laughs> it's amazing that, <laughs> there's really basically a, the deal. that there's a TV show about Portland, Oregon. They're going to send you back to New York. We love that show, too. We love that show, and uh, we're, we're, we're happy to have people make fun of us, which is why they probably won't totally burn me at the stake, but I'll probably take a little crap for this. Uh, well, anyways, we, has, we had a good conversation. We drank a lot of beers. I will say next week on Tuesday, uh, Travel Portland's bringing three Portland, Oregon brewers to New York City, uh, guys from the Commons, Occidental, and Gigantic. Wow. And they'll be at a fancy thing at the Nomad Tuesday. Wednesday night, though, you get your bargain deal. Go to Jimmy's number 43, and you can just buy their beer. We're going to have nine nine taps of all nice. Portland, Oregon beers. Yeah. Say hi I'm to coming. those guys. Those are, those it's are our 10th anniversary. I'm Saturdays. coming. Yeah, man. That's, gonna be, that's probably the coolest night of my life. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it's so cool to have you here, you know, previewing your book, Beer Bible. Steven, you want to weigh in on anything else before we close out? I'm just uh, going to sit here and read this book. Uh, it's pretty good, man. And uh, Ed, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, I'm just wondering how you pulled that one off, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we, let's put it this way. December 5th comes, you can go to Mugsdale House. In Waynesburg for your Brooklyn, Belgian night. Yes. And yes. Jamie's number 43 for Battle of the We're doing the weekend. All right. <laughs> but it's good to have you guys on. And uh, really, thanks for coming out, Jeff. I, I really like your book. I'm about, I'm probably at about page 50. I got to get a copy. I, I, I fibbed it tonight, but no, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's very long. I'm sorry. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but it's good reading for, for years to come. It's a lot to bear. So thanks, everybody, to, to Jeff, Ed, and Stephen for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Justin Kennedy and Maggie Seiden. And thanks to our engineer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Yeah. Listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.